This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica Anderson. Today, my guest is Casper Turkile. He's the author of a new book, The Power of Ritual, Turning Everyday Activities into Soulful Practices. And I've got to say, this is, was one of my most enjoyable podcast interviews I've ever done. And I just loved chatting with Casper about his work, which really um, sort of segues with mine in his focus on community and the importance of ritual habit um, and just having um, meaning and purpose in the things that we're doing in the way that we're gathering each day and, and throughout our lives. And I, I find it really applicable now, especially as we've all been through quarantine and dealing with COVID-19 and maybe you're feeling a little bit more lonely than we normally would. Um, I highly recommend tuning in, guys. Grab a copy of his book, and I think some of this is really going to resonate with you. Enjoy this conversation with Casper. All right, Casper, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm excited to talk with you today. Thanks, Erica. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, to kick us off, tell us a bit about who you are and your background, your family, and also maybe just a bit about your professional background. Yeah, so I grew up in the UK, um, but my parents were both Dutch. And I think next to Denmark, Holland is probably the most secular country in the world. So I grew up without any sort of sense of religion at home. You know, I didn't know anyone who went to church. I, we, you know, we didn't talk about God. It was kind of absent. Um, and by the time I came out in high school, uh, you know, religion for me was either absent or cruel, right? Like I, it, mm-hmm. it just was so far away from my day-to-day experience. Um, but I ended up working uh, as an activist, especially on climate change issues. And over time realized that the, the challenges that I wanted to solve in the world were not just about policy or even politics, but they were really about a sort of a paradigm. How, how do we understand ourselves to be in relationship with one another? How do we understand ourselves to be in relationship with the world around us? Um, which, you know, are kind of religious questions. Um, and yeah. so very quickly, I, I ended up going to graduate school uh, at Harvard for a public policy degree, but I kept meeting these people who were much more interesting at the Divinity School. And so I ended up doing a, a, a joint master's degree um, and, and just completely fell in love with uh, with the Divinity School and, and kind of the, the religious traditions. And so I found myself... Um, really thinking about the way in which these religious traditions are changing and adapting in our contemporary world. And so a lot of my research in my professional life has been thinking about the the kind of trends of disaffiliation and the growth of social isolation and disconnection, but also the ways in which what seems like you know, secular community, whether it's a fitness group or a maker space or a, a grief and loss community or a recovery community, how so many kind of religious things are happening in these secular spaces. And so m- my work has really started to think about um, 
not so much the, the kind of decline of religion, but the transformation of it and the mm. way in which it's now showing up in the workplace, right, with meditation programs or the way in which it's becoming more active in our homes uh, for, for people who might never describe themselves as religious. Uh, and so that's my work now in Sacred Design Lab, which is an organization that kind of tracks these trends and, and researches them and, and hopes to build um products and programming and, and all sorts of experiments that that enrich people's um, social and spiritual lives. I'm curious, when you went to Harvard Divinity School, did you find a lot of people who were not particularly personally religious? You know, it's so interesting because there's that, you know, famous joke for any, certainly folks in the evangelical world, right? You go to Harvard Divinity School to lose your faith. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, it has a history of being a very progressive divinity school that, of course, now is not affiliated with any specific tradition, um, although it has a, a strong Christian history, which is inescapable. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my classmates were extremely diverse. You know, I had people who were becoming, you know, Methodist ministers, UCC ministers, uh, but also people becoming rabbis, people becoming Muslim scholars. Um, you know, I had a herbologist. I had a, you know, any, any, any mix, uh, you know, someone who was saying I'm Presbyterian and Catholic, right? You, basically anyone who comes to, to Harvard is, is going to be interested in the edge of their tradition, right? Even if they're going to become a rabbi, even if they're going to become an ordained uh, minister in one tradition or another, that they're often looking uh, kind of beyond their own tradition, uh, either because they recognize that the world is made of multiple identities now, and you kind of have to, you have to be familiar with that, or because they're always interested in the kind of relationship between their own tradition and others, and no tradition, of course, more and more. So mm-hmm. it was a very stimulating place academically, because we always start by learning one another's stories, kind of the, the spiritual autobiography before before the, uh, the, the the introduction class, the introduction to ministry studies class. And so you've got a real sense of people's lens that they were bringing to the texts that we were studying or, you know, that their own experience of a tradition before we studied it together, which was wonderful. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I just read this book, um, Holy Envy by Barbara Brown Taylor. Do you yes. read her? Yeah. I love her. Yes. Yeah, I, I love her writing so much. And that just reminds me so much of that book because she teaches religious studies at a small college, but her whole her, her, you know, her thing in that class is like she's teaching the students about all the different religions and the, the many, you know, valuable things in each religion. And it was just so well written and just it made me want to go like, you know, get a <laughs> master's degree in religion or something. So um, that sounds like an amazing experience to have. Um, now, your book is launching next month, The Power of Ritual. How are you feeling about it launching right now <laughs> during this crazy time? <laughs> yeah, who could have you know predicted this would be the reality that we're in? You know, on the one hand, of course, there's things I was looking forward to that I can't do. You know, that, mm-hmm. that we were planning a 20-city book tour and, and all sorts of fun other things. But honestly, Erica, I feel like you know, among the the many horrors of this COVID-19 experiences, one of the silver linings, I think, is that it has opened up space for so many people to look at their lives, really as a spiritual reckoning, Mm -hmm. to ask, like, what do I want? You know, is is this is this really what I want? This life that I have, um, and, and an openness, I think, to asking bigger questions and to think about 
wow, what are the things that give my day a sense of rhythm, right? How do I, how do I mark the difference when I'm working and I'm not working? Or how do I, how do I focus my intention on the, the people who I, I, I want to spend most of my time with uh, or the kind of relationship that I want to have? And so ritual has ended up being part of the conversation in ways that I, I wouldn't have expected um, that is really, really exciting. And so there's an openness and a hunger, I think, for uh, the kind of questions that I explore in the book. Yeah, you know, I've noticed this um, sort of trend line about talking about ritual, habit, mm-hmm. atomic habits, mm-hmm. that book mm-hmm. recently came out, and then right. I, I just finished one, um, The Common, oh, now I forgot the title, but it's 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 basically a, almost like a Christian version of Atomic Habits, but yeah. which I've also read. Um, so it's, it's, you're really tapping into something, obviously, <laughs> they think that the culture is like wanting right now, they're wanting ritual back, and they're wanting habits yeah. back, and wanting ways to form their lives with meaning. So I, I can see why what you've done has caught on so much. Um, now the subtitle of the book is turning everyday events into soulful practices, which I love. Mm. So, um, just on that note, can you give us, um, just give me the rundown, you know, the quick shot about what is the book about, which we kind of already know. And then also what are some of these everyday events that you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So in the context of, of, you know, growing disaffiliation, especially among younger people, you know, 40% of millennials in the US are now unaffiliated, and Gen Z looks to be even higher. Um, So as that as a background kind of context, as well as the growth of social isolation and loneliness, uh, the book really asks, where can we find connection to the things that matter most? And uh, it takes us through kind of four levels of connection, connecting to ourselves, connecting to one another, connecting to the natural world, and then connecting to transcendence. And I really invite the reader to think about the, the ways in which they're already practicing, you know, little habits every day that are oriented towards um, maybe, a, a, you know, finding a breath in the morning. Maybe it's while you're making coffee, right? Maybe that's a moment where you just take five seconds to like take a deep breath. Maybe it's as you're drinking the coffee, you're looking out of the window just before the start of the day, or it might be, you know, lighting candles on the dinner table. It might be taking the dog out for a walk and like not listening to a podcast, but just trying to appreciate, you know, the beautiful, um, you know, blossoms or, or the trees around you, right? Like I, th- I think so many of us, whether we're religious or not, have these these habits, which we're already doing. And the, the book really says, well, each of these are a perfect location to kind of bring some ancient wisdom to and to turn it into an intentional ritual. Um, so, you know, what can we learn about the history of pilgrimage for that walking the dog moment? What can we learn about Sabbath uh, if we think about kind of starting the day with with a breath uh, away from our technology? Um, so I, I really want readers to, to feel empowered, um, especially, you know, if maybe – Listeners will, will know someone in their life who's like not religious, but kind of interested in things, maybe a little wary of religion, mm-hmm. but, but who are maybe they're doing a yoga teacher training, right? Or they're, or they're trying meditation for the first time. I think so many, so many people out there right now are, are exploring these questions, but maybe don't quite know where to start. So my hope is that the, the book will be a way in which people can kind of develop something in their life to, to really kind of create that, that sacred ground um, out of the things that we're already doing. And so for you, you said you grew up with no religion. So where do you stand now with religion? How do you, how do you describe that role in your life now? 
Well, one of the big things that came out of my years at the divinity school were that I understood that my definition of religion was deeply flawed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and to some extent, you know, the way in which we talk about religion is very much framed by the Protestant uh, tradition, right? It's about what you believe. Now, that is certainly the case. Uh, you know, ask any Lutheran and they'll tell you. Um, but, you know, for, for much of the rest of the world, religion is often more informed about how you practice it's about what you do. Um, and, and that's not absent in the Christian tradition, of course, but it, it, it's, it's, less, uh, it, it, it's less central, certainly, in the Protestant tradition. So when I looked back at my life and I thought about, well, what were the practices, what were the rituals um, in my life, I actually saw how rich that experience was. Um, I went to a Waldorf school, a Steiner school, which is full of, uh, you know, wonderful, strange rituals. Like when I was, uh, you know, on your first day of school, that the graduating class uh, gives you a rose. And then on the last day uh, of of school, the graduating class receives a gift from the youngest kids, right? They're they're all of these lovely traditions um, and a very strong community. And so when I look back at my own uh, and my own family, you know, dancing around a maypole, uh, uh, you know, singing to the cattle in our village at Christmas Eve, all of these traditions, I looked at them and I was like, oh, gosh, this is actually a very religious life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I think about what I do. And so now, you know, I still don't fit into a into a box of I'm this or I'm that. I've been deeply inspired by, by a lot of Jewish traditions, especially the Sabbath. Um, but I'm also very passionate about observing the kind of Christian liturgical calendar. Um, so I, I'm still very much the kind of archetypical millennial who is <laughs> spiritual but not religious in, in that sense that, um, you know, I, I, I'm deeply committed to many practices and have many rich relationships. You know, my spiritual director is a Catholic nun, um, but I, I, I still don't quite fit into um, and honestly, I don't really want to uh, at this point, because I think in in my experience, my identity is kind of one of multiplicity. And so anchoring into one particular congregation I I would feel a little bit like a loss of those other elements of Mm -hmm. of my spiritual life Um, and I think that's one of the big design challenges if if I can use that kind of framing Mm -hmm. for a lot of congregations and denominations today is to think about you know you don't want to be in a situation where inviting people in demands you know making people let go of part of their identity um, you know, our, our, our concept of gender, our concept of race, uh, and I think soon our concept of, of religious tradition, we're going to find ourselves amid a multiplicity and a fluidity um, that demands a different approach to, to bringing people into committed relationships and, and pathways of formation. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I've, I've done a lot of, um, you know, research myself on the nuns and the rise of the nuns and the yeah. spiritual but not religious. I, I'm totally fascinated by myself as well. Um, and, and what I think is interesting is sometimes I think people at first glance at a headline like that think that we're becoming, you know, sort of a godless America right. or a godless right. West. <laughs> but it's really not that at all. It's it's very yes. much um, like the vast majority, as, I'm, as you know, I'm sure, do believe in God and mm-hmm. do... Uh, value spiritual things and it is just this transformation that you're tapping into um you mentioned fitness and i noticed that uh (laughs) you use that example and i personally as a crossfit person was like okay you know i get it because i love crossfit and i have been totally you know in that church for many years (laughs) um but what do you think it is about fitness specifically that uh draws people in in this way 
It's such a great question, Erica. Yeah, and and it's really important to emphasize what you're saying. You know, even amongst those 40% who say they're unaffiliated of the millennials, two out of three still believe in God or a higher power, and one in five even pray every day. So you're absolutely right that it's it's not a, a decline in religiosity. It's it's a transference of where that relog- religiosity is taking place. And one of those places that they're going are fitness communities. CrossFit is one. Soul Cycle is another. I mean, the clue is in the name, right? Soul Cycle. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's, you know, bar class, there's there's Spartan Race, November Project. So, so many of these communities are really thriving right now. And I think there's a couple of reasons why. The first is that they offer us something that our dominant culture says is important, right? They're saying, get a hot body. <laughs> like, we're going <laughs> we're gonna to help you get fit. You're going to look great, right? You're going to lose weight. You're going to be healthy. And all of those things are things that are, are, are reinforced in our dominant culture. Now, that's often why people come, right? People come for the body, but at CrossFit, they stay for the community, right? Mm-hmm. Very quickly, people form relationships that are not just about working out, but people get together for drinks on a Friday night. There's a talent night where people play cello for the first time. There's a mums and babies group. There's a, you know, pe- people look after each other's dogs when someone goes on holiday, right? There's all sorts of community events that start to happen. And just like a congregation, people start to, you know, raise money when someone is diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. People True. get involved in their families, you know, or, or, or just the ways that you would expect in a congregation, the same is true at a CrossFit. So they become communities of care. Now to Soul Cycle, people come for the body, but they stay for the breakthrough, which describes mm-hmm. that moment of kind of emotional release, which happens with the penultimate song that's played in this kind of perfect 45 minute liturgical arc in this, you know, black box, everyone's on stationary bikes, music is super loud. There's a sort of raised altar at the front of the room. And someone isn't just instructing you how to cycle, they're they're preaching. You know, they're asking questions like, who are you writing for today? What do you want to let go of in your life? I mean, it's straight up preaching. You know, Um, that's, I was just going to say, so I've been doing Peloton apps since uh, quarantine. And so I have a treadmill, I don't have the Peloton bike. But anyway, I do the boot camps. And that is their whole thing. I mean, that right. whole class, the teacher is going, you know, listen to this song, like embrace the words. What do you need right. to let go of? Like, it is right. just like a total, like super soul Sunday moment every time. Exactly. And it's, you know, we can, we can laugh at that and say, well, that's just a weak imitation of, of church, right? But it's not. I mean, really what it, what it does for people is absolutely at the spiritual level. So th- th- that first thing, one of the reasons why the fitness groups are so effective is that they, they have an invitation that makes sense in the dominant culture. And then the reason why people stay is this deeper fulfilling experience of connection, of meaning. Um, and, and, and they have a business model that makes it work, you know, which is, which is remarkable. Because a lot of new communities that are doing beautiful stuff, maybe around arts or justice or other forms of community, often struggle to build a financial model and, mm-hmm. and therefore struggle to last. Um, so that's one of the, the big trends that we've seen in our research. Yeah, the other thing I, uh, just thinking about when I was reading Atomic Habits is how much of it people adopt as their identity and then that becomes even another layer of meaning there. Absolutely. And, and you know, you hear people do that all the time. I mean, even more so if you think about the practice of religious dietary laws, right? If you think about in Judaism, the, the kosher diet laws, CrossFit communities often, you know, everyone is eating paleo, right? Or what, whatever it is, um, a, a, as a way of marking us as different from the rest of society. Mm-hmm. And you'll know there's kind of, you know, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek humor in the CrossFit world where people say, well, we're training for the zombie apocalypse. And, and <laughs> we're joking, but we're also not joking, right? Like there's a sense of 
no, we are a little bit the chosen ones. And, yeah. and we're working hard for it, right? Um, but but absolutely, there's that sense of identity that grows that isn't just about me, but it's kind of belonging to a tribe. And you see it come to life in things like the CrossFit Games, right? This annual gathering of thousands of CrossFitters from all around the world who come together to compete or watch others compete in this in this kind of Olympic Games-style environment. And there's a real sense of, of belonging to a people, like belonging to a tribe. Yes, I have been to the CrossFit Games. Too, and I love it so much. Yes. <laughs> love about it, Erica. It's um, so cool. You know, it's so interesting because I am not a big sports person, generally speaking. Right. Um, but when I was growing up, I'll say um, I, I loved doing gymnastics and mm-hmm. I was never very good at it, but I worked really hard and eventually was able to attain some goals. And when I started doing CrossFit, it reminded me of that feeling I had as a kid. Um, and then just... Um, I think it's almost like because you can be a regular person and still be doing like almost the same things as the professionals too. That's right. Because That's the CrossFit exactly. Games, everyone starts at the at the same level. Like you're all doing the same workout to try to qualify for the CrossFit Games, which obviously most of us would never do. <laughs> but um, at least that's how it used to be. They've kind of had some weird changes in the past couple of years. But it it has changed. But you're, I think you're exactly right that you can you see people doing the same movements and the same combinations that you do, but at this extremely high level. And Right. In some ways, it kind of mirrors for me this sense of spiritual formation, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. we, the, the most important mentors and, and kind of spiritual guides in our life are living life, you know, making decisions about what to buy, how to live, you know, how to be in a partnership, how to forgive people, just like we do. But they seem to do it with this, I don't know, this godliness. That is just like yeah. And I think it's it's part of the kind of inspirational journey of, of having someone like that, witnessing someone like that in your life and being like, gosh, is there a pathway that I can grow into to become like that? That's yeah, so powerful. that is so true. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Now, I saw that you had referenced, not surprisingly, uh, reading Robert Putnam, which I'm a huge fan, Um, American Grace and Bowling Alone and um, all of his books. So good. Um, What have you found? I mean, I... It's maybe obvious, but when you look at the loss of community, mm-hmm. the loss of faith, and the loss of those rituals in the past, you know, since the 50s and 60s, what have you found as the, some of the biggest contributors? Why did this happen? Well, that's a hotly contested question. Yeah. <laughs> 
and and one of the things that we should remember is it's very easy to draw a line, you know, to the 1950s, which was this apex in American community life, mm-hmm. right? Church membership, uh, a membership of organization like the Elks or the Rotary. Um, and and honestly, if you go back another hundred years or another two hundred years, you you get a situation that looks much more like today. So to some extent, we should be a little skeptical of always going back to the fifties as the kind of you know the, the baseline. But mm-hmm. that being said, you know some of the major impacts. Uh, uh, first of all, are women entering the workforce, right? If you think about congregational life, they depended on the free labor of women mostly. Uh, uh, to a huge extent in terms of organizing all sorts of committees and activities. So as women entered the workforce, th- there simply wasn't that free labor to draw on. So that's that's just kind of an economic uh, piece of the puzzle. One of the cultural pieces of the puzzle are the ways in which Christianity especially was politicized in the 1980s and 90s. So you have the emergence of organizations like Focus on the Family, the Moral Majority, and to be religious very quickly became equated with to be uh, politically conservative, maybe even right wing, certainly being very um, anti-gay, anti-women even. Um, And so it became a political statement to say I'm religious, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly I'm Christian. And what you saw, I think, in terms of the affiliation question is very quickly a whole bunch of people who otherwise would have said, like, well, maybe, yeah, I'm sure I'm Presbyterian, even though they didn't go to church or saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm, you know, I'm Catholic, even though they hadn't been to mass forever, saying, actually, I don't want to own that label because it's going to mean all sorts of things that I don't want it to mean. You know, I, I, I don't want that to represent me when I introduce myself or when I talk about myself. So I think that's one of the reasons why you saw this very drastic move in the, in the self-labeling, right, in the affiliation, even though there's a much longer curve when you're looking at actual behaviors. So what's interesting now is that we're in the midst of this enormous gap between people's individual experience Right. What you referenced before, people still believing in something bigger than themselves, people still doing religious practices. So this gap between individuals and institutions. And this is bigger than just religion. Right. We're seeing a lower trust in government, lower trust in the media, lower trust in expertise. Perhaps COVID will change that. We'll see. But but, but nonetheless, there's there's this real uh, this real uh, dissonance between institutions and individuals. So much so a friend of mine recently said, which I loved that, you know, especially millennials and, and Gen Zs, we, we don't want to affiliate with institutions. We want to affiliate with individuals. And so that's why you've seen the rise of the, the influencer and, you know, the, the Instagram star. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of, of having an understanding of who this person is and what they represent and therefore being willing to stand for them rather than the institution where you're like, I don't fully understand what this is. And I'm not quite happy for it to represent me. You know, in the Jewish context, you see this with the state of Israel. A lot of younger Jews are saying, you know, it's complicated. I don't really want to have this kind of, you know, intense Israel-focused identity in the way that previous generations did. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's it's bigger than just the Christian context. Um, I was just thinking, you know, just thinking back to the conversation about Soul Cycle and CrossFit and things like yeah. that. It seems like um, there. I mean, fill me in here if I'm wrong, but it seems like there could be um, a gap in that. You know, CrossFit, SoulCycle, those kind of, this costs a lot of money. So you're, you've mm-hmm. got people on the bottom that don't have the money to join those kinds of like created communities. What, where are those people able to find this? Well, it's a great question. And, and very often when we talk about the nuns, it's very easy to talk about that kind of high earning, high spending, liberal, you know, well-educated yeah. 
white person. And, and actually, when you look at the data of who the nuns are, there's another sector of the population, which is actually at the very, very bottom of the income scale of people who are literally, you know, priced out of community and not, and not just those expensive ones, but also congregational life because they, you know, either they're, they're working shift work and they can't attend on a regular basis. And, you know, uh, mm-hmm. they might not have a car, they can't get there easily. Um, or there might also just be a real sense of, um, you know, I, I'm not welcome there. This isn't for people like me, uh, you know, especially for someone who might have had, uh, you know, insecure housing or, um, you know, is worried about how they're, how they're going to be perceived. Uh, so it's absolutely right to, to point to the question of what belonging looks like there. And often, you know, community organizations really struggle. Um, however, one of the things that we've had to learn in our research, you know, we wrote a paper called How We Gather, uh, my colleague uh, Angie Thurston and I back in uh, 2014, 2015, and we were looking at organizations that had that kind of millennial kind of cultural vibe, right? They had a they had a manifesto. They all were built on a Squarespace website. Even their logos all looked the same, right? They're all circles with some sort of cute design. Mm-hmm. Um and so it was very easy to spot those organizations. But organizations that were focused more on folks living on the margins of our dominant culture, so whether that's folks of color, uh, folks of lower income scale, often they didn't have the same kind of self-promotion, self-advertising, look at me vibe, um, <laughs> and were more neighborhood-based or were more based within, you know, if it was in uh, families that had recently immigrated, they were more along familial lines. Um, so community just looks differently in different cultural contexts. And if you go looking, as we did, for one particular expression, you're actually going to miss a lot of the community structures that exist, um, but but just look a little different. So, yeah. so for me, um, this is just so important because I've done all this reading and research just about the rates of depression and anxiety and um, just the way people are suffering in the West right now, specifically from social isolation, like you talk about. And sometimes, and maybe you get this feeling too, when I'm trying to, you know, say here, community is the answer. Now I'm normally talking (laughs) about church community, but I'm, you know, I'm putting it out there. Like I I want any to join any community at this point, because that is going to ultimately save lives, I think in the end. And so, um, how do you know that your message is resonating? Because occasionally I feel like I'm just short, sort of shouting out into the ether, like, please, <laughs> like I see someone, you know, that is, is isolating themselves. Like, come on, join a group. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, okay, like, I don't know if my enthusiasm is going to get them to do it. So <laughs> how do you know um, that your message is resonating and how do you keep up, I guess, your striving in ensuring that this gets out there? Because I'm sure you think it's important for similar reasons. Oh, I vibe with you so much on this, <laughs> Erica, absolutely. <laughs> and, I, you know, I'm a very extroverted person. For me, you know, relationships are really important. Um, and honestly, I've had to learn uh, from my husband, amongst others, that my my experience of community is not necessarily everyone's experience yeah, of community, yeah. right? And that, that what I think a healthy life looks like is not necessarily true for everyone. So for me, I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious of having lots of people in my life who are really important to me. Now, the data shows that since the mid-1980s, the average American has gone from three friends, kind of good close friends, three to two. Mm. So on average, there's been a a drop of a whole friend, as it were, over the last 20, 30 years. Um, And so often it's not necessary for someone to like suddenly go from, you know, one to 200 friends, right? Like the difference can be just one additional person in your life with whom you feel, you know, comfortable sharing meaningful conversation. Um, And 
one of the challenging things I think for us who care about community, who care about congregations, is that we 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 want people to be part of a community. So we talk about the value of community. That is really hard. One of the reasons that I was pointing to with CrossFit example is that there's a there's a kind of a, a first reason of why people join that actually has nothing to do with community, mm-hmm. but they end up staying because they experience its power. So finding a sort of excuse <laughs> for people to, to join or, or, or go to something, whether it's about skills, whether it's about, um, you know, uh, uh, l- you know, learning something, getting to know someone who can help you in your career. Um, maybe it's about changing something in your life that you want to do. Often the, the big life change moments, right, when we move house or have a baby or lose someone that we love, those are moments of ripe kind of uh, potential for behavior change. So so trying maybe to time something around a big life change is another way you can think about inviting people to, to try something new. But it, it, it's tough. I mean, even folks in a medical context, right, as the, as the healthcare industry starts to realize more and more how impactful social isolation is on all sorts of health outcomes, um, they're starting to think about, can we prescribe relationship? It's called oh, social prescribing. That'd be so, so cool. It's literally happening right now. Um, but the challenge, because <laughs> even this system is imperfect, is, you know, if I say, so, for example, you know, a doctor might have a patient called Martha and uh, a doctor says, Martha, you know, I, I know you're struggling. Um, one of the things that can really help is, is, is a healthy relationship, you know, being having more friends around. Why don't you go along to this art class? Now, the challenge is if it's organized by the health system, guess who else is in that art, art class? All the other lonely people. <laughs> so, and, and so, you know, programs like that are, are, are limited in impact because you and I know you need a healthy community, a healthy right. congregation that can carry, you know, some folks who just need a little extra help right now over the, over the next couple of months or years until that person becomes, you know, that cared for by the community and, and, and hopefully in a healthier place that they themselves can be of help and service. Um, and so I, one of my hopes is to start to see, you know, communities and congregations, not just as places of connection, but actually as delivering a public health good, right? To see a congregation as part of the health system, because it has such a huge impact on people's quality of life. Yeah. I'm wondering if you've noticed in your research any difference between men and women, because what I've noticed and is sort of a common oh, yeah. knowledge is that men have far fewer friends in general than women. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a real, uh, it's, it's, it's not easy. One of the kind of true adages that I always think about is men talk shoulder to shoulder, not face to face. Mm -hmm. So there's some, there's some wonderful projects out there that the shed project, which started in Australia, um, where there was a real, uh, real challenging situation with, um, male farmers who when they reached the age of retirement uh, committed suicide mm. because suddenly all the networks of um, friendship which was through uh, you know through work and then at the bar afterwards were kind of taken away and so they needed spaces where they could be kept busy doing something making something in this case they were working on carpentry maybe making chairs for the local primary school whatever it was um, but it, it gave them an excuse to be together and with a you know a kettle to make a cup of tea now and then this being australia uh that that was that was enough to bring people into relationship again um and so finding ways to to you know to bring people into comfortable 
uh, relationship is 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 really important. I mean, on on the more intense side of things, I think you are seeing a resurgence of things like women's groups, men's groups, moon circles. You know, all sorts of ways in which you know uh, men specifically are, are are having more chances to connect at a at a soul level. But those are still you know very very small compared to the need. Yeah, I was going to say I I I can't remember where I was reading, and I think it was like Time Magazine. Uh, last year, there was a big article about uh, the research or the high rates of suicide. I think it was in Montana, where you know it's very spaced out, and it was among you know p- post fifty white males yep. was is yep. the suicide rate, and so you know same exact thing you're talking about there. Um, and yeah, I just think of even my husband, um, you know, me telling him, you know, who's an introvert, which makes it harder. Mm-hmm. You know, I say. I say to him things like, you need to, like, have community. And, you know, he rolls his eyes like, okay, like, I'm not going to go out to, like, have community. You know, and I think that that can be true of a lot of people. So I I love your point about, like, giving another reason, like, finding the other reason to get someone to join. Because generally people are not just, like, many, like, me personally, like, I'm like, yeah, I love community. Bring it like, on. Yeah. Bring <laughs> every, I want to do every activity and be in every group. And that's just my personality. But, right, like, not everybody has that personality, and, so. And, th- and there's more going on here, Erica, which makes it all the harder, which is that literally our, our neuroscience kind of tells us that when we don't have enough community, that we don't have enough connection, we're actually very suspicious mm. of anyone trying to build a relationship that, that we become, you know, are they pitying me? Is there another agenda? Like what's going on? You know, I'm safer on my own. Like th- that's the kind of self-talk that starts to happen in our brain. And so it takes real, real, you know, hard work and courage to kind of break through that. Because once once you are in a place of loneliness, literally our, our, our fight or flight response comes in hard and and we become very very hesitant about any any sort of organized community life yeah that makes sense um so ultimately uh you know as your book comes out which congratulations by the way that's that's very exciting um what you know what is your message i guess what is your ultimate message why should people pick this book up what do you want to say yeah, my, my real hope is that readers of the book will feel a sense of spiritual confidence, um, by which I mean the sense that, you know, we can create sacredness in our lives. Um, no doubt, you know, if you're part of a church community, there's so much already that's rich in our congregational life. But I also think there's a real invitation for us to look at our daily habits, the things that are around our home, you know, on the way to work, that that, that these are all moments ripe for, for becoming a spiritual practice. Whether it's, uh, you know, on the daily commute, if we ever get back to that, to, you know, take an opportunity of looking at a stranger and thinking of them, you know, with with loving kindness, um, whether it's about you know, the moment before we share a meal as a family to turn that into a moment of blessing and connection. Um, that there's so many moments in our every day that can become sacred practices. Even, you know, even having an Oscars watching party, right? Like even the beginning of the baseball season or, or your favorite book, right? I, li- I write a lot about how Harry Potter has kind of become like a sacred text for a lot of people who, who read the Harry Potter books. And my hope is really just to, to, to find the sacred in the everyday and, and find some simple ways to translate our traditions in ways that they can have real resonance for people today. Yeah, and I think really that it you have a powerful connection um, or have a powerful target market with parents because 
Uh, you know, creating those things for, for kids is so important because when we look back as child, like you were saying in the beginning, you look back at your childhood and it's those things that you did over and over again that are so close to your heart. And I, I'm thinking about that now. My kids are two and four. So I'm like, we're building those things and even just little things where I'm like, you know, my, my son, like I, we talk about every day, like when the sun is coming up or going down, we talk about the pink sky and I'm like, that's a ritual that we talk about and he's going to remember when he gets older, you know? Absolutely. And it, it, you know, they can feel so small and silly at the time. And then exactly as you say, when you look back, you're like, actually, that's a foundation of, of why I am the way I am, right? Because that's important to say rituals aren't just there to like, enjoy and celebrate in the moment. Rituals are formative practices. And what we practice, we become. And so, you know, the, the rituals that we center in our life will actually shape us uh, in, in very, very powerful ways. So yeah, if, if it's thinking about special moments in the calendar or certain moments in the day, um, maybe certain songs that you sing together. I mean, I often think about the moment of like snuggling kids before you, you know, before they're going into bed, unless mm -hmm. you know, it's a difficult bedtime, which <laughs> everyone knows. Sometimes. Those <laughs> but like when, when there are those moments, right. Thinking, thinking of, of that, that snuggle time as a sacred practice. Like how would that, how would that change the way in which we approach it? Right. Um, because I think that, that those are the moments of deep connection that become, yeah, just more important than words. Yeah, totally. Okay, I've got a couple of end of the podcast questions for you. Yeah. Um, well, first question is just who who are maybe who's maybe a role model, someone that you are looking to um, as a professional or a, or a personal role model, um, someone that is a role model to you. Oh, there are so many. The the one I'm thinking of today is Seth Godin. Mm, okay. um, Seth is I mean, he writes about marketing as, mm -hmm. ostensibly. Um, and he's, you know, written many wonderful books, but what I love most is, uh, first of all, his discipline. He's written a blog, I think every day, uh, for, you know, however many decades at this point, but he is someone who is kinder and more generous and creative in person than he is even online. Uh, I was very lucky enough to be part of, uh, this, this gathering of 14 people who he, he put out an application in the summer of 2014 or maybe the spring of 2014 saying, hey, if you want to come learn with me, uh, you know, fill in this application. And he just brought all of us to his house. Oh, my gosh. We just got to learn from him and the way he thinks and creates and, you know, his generosity of spirit to serve people as they're coming up behind him is something that I, I hope to, to embody. That's cool. I, yeah, I have been familiar with Seth Godin for many years and, um, I've noticed that, you know, obviously I haven't met him, but I've noticed that sort of spirit that you're mentioning about how he's just very helpful to people, um, Generous. building people up. So that, that's really cool that you got to do that. Um, on that note, uh, if you could have dinner or drinks with anyone besides Seth Godin, <laughs> who would it be and why? I think it would be John O'Donoghue, um, okay. who was a, a Catholic priest in Ireland and, and a wonderful poet. Uh, he very famously said, the second best thing I ever did was to become a priest, and the best thing I ever did was to leave the priesthood, um, which <laughs> was a man after my own heart, you know, deeply committed to the tradition, but also wanting to create new expressions of it. Um, but uh, he, he died when he was only in his 50s in, in 2008. But his, his writing uh, has been so formative for me, and I... I went to visit his grave <laughs> when before I wrote my thesis because I, I was inspired by him in writing the thesis and I you know I, I kind of made a little pilgrimage to uh, to ask him for his permission. He said yes, which was great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I I would just yeah I would love to have dinner with him and experience his warm humor and and uh, and intellect. 
That's awesome. Uh, what's a goal for you in the next five years? Hmm. You know, I had such a good time writing this book. I want to write another one. <laughs> oh, really? You know, you don't always hear that. Sometimes people say, oh my gosh, I don't, that was so hard. I don't know if I can ever do it again. I mean, it was it, the best description I heard from someone was like writing a book is being locked in a room with the most stupid version of yourself. <laughs> that is definitely true. But, but one of the joys of writing is that you have to crystallize what you think. Yeah. You have to really, you know, interrogate, well, what do I mean by this? And, and your early readers will ask you if you don't make it clear. And so it's been a wonderful way of, of kind of clarifying my own thoughts and, and, and vision for the world. So, um, yeah, I'd love to do that that's, again. Oh, that's so true. I'm in the I'm in a middle of a sort of pre-book uh, writing course right Fantastic. now, where, where I'm like putting together all the things that I want my book to be structured like, so that when it comes time to really get into the writing, like I I actually have an organization set forward uh-huh. rather than just a blank it's sheet of paper with no <laughs> direction. The <best laughs> yes, the structure is the hardest part. That is so smart oh, to yeah. focus on that. So, so yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, okay. One of my favorite questions and the last question, any books or podcasts, TV shows, anything you've watched, listened to, read recently that you can recommend to listeners? I have loved watching Mrs. America on Hulu. Ooh, I've watched the first two episodes. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, it's, it follows the, the, the women's movement and kind of counter movement of the 1970s and the, uh, the, the slow ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, and for me, it was so interesting. You know, I'd, I'd known about the women's movement, um, but to, to get to know these characters on a, on a more personal level uh, and, and the, of course, the, the fractious relationships and collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, was was just really inspiring also because it's a reminder that change takes time mm-hmm. you know and and that for those of us who are engaged in in, in activism in some way um, you know to 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 remember that you know the arc of history is long uh, yeah. and it, it takes hard work and time to bend it towards justice and there are some great actors in that show oh too. my god stellar cast yeah yeah absolutely fantastic any pod are you a podcast listener oh yeah absolutely i mean uh, oh gosh, there's so many. I love the Slate Culture Gab Fest. I, uh, the Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green. I just, uh-huh. I think he's the most beautiful writer and actually deeply spiritual writer. Um, and he reads aloud these essays that just inevitably make oh, me cry. Interesting. We'll have yeah, to check that out. check him out. I'm pretty sure he lives in my city too. Are you in Indianapolis? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like it, he's one of the big Martin? famous people here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, he's a wonderful man. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing the podcast with me today. It's been so great to hear about your book and just all of these things that you're studying. I mean, so close to my heart and all of the things that I'm interested in as well. Um, So I just wish you the best as your book comes out next month. Thank you so much, Eric. And thanks for everything you do. I I hope our paths can cross in person when it's uh, safe to do Uh, so. Yes, I (laughs) hope so too. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. 
Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.